chapter 15 verse 40 to chapter 16 verse 8. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you to, into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the woman went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. I am now going to pray for Mike and the sermon. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you. Um, and I pray that you bless this sermon, that you bless what Mike has to say to us, that we may receive it with thankfulness and joy, and that it may transform our hearts and renew our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Shalapi. Easter is one of the best known aspects of Christianity. It's famous, there are many festivals and events around the world. Most people are familiar with it. But what is it all about? Now on Friday, I shared a simple definition that sums up the message of Easter in three words. Let me just run it past you again. Easter is about life through death. Life through death. Now that's one of the paradoxes of the Christian faith. Easter shows us that Jesus Christ gives life through his death and it, it's the only way to truly have life. Now we thought about some of this on Good Friday. We looked at the cross of Jesus. We saw how the only morally perfect, the only truly good person in history died a horrific death. And we learned that the greater part of Jesus' sufferings were not physical, as horrendous as they were, but spiritual. On the cross, Jesus died for our sins. He suffered as a substitute. And therefore, his death can provide forgiveness for many. We thought about how Jesus' death actually means the end of guilt because the debt and burden of needing forgiveness is taken away. And we thought about how Jesus' death also is the end of shame 
because Jesus provides a love and an unconditional acceptance that no one else does that changes us at the very core of who we are. Now that is life coming through his death. And today, Easter Sunday, we're visiting his tomb and we find, as we've just heard, that the tomb is empty. This too is life from death. The resurrection of Jesus means that Jesus has defeated death, our greatest enemy. So for those who trust in him, for those who belong to him, for those who receive new birth from him, there is now a hope of life beyond the grave. The hope of a better tomorrow, the hope of a life without end. Now, that, and a very early definition of, of the Christian faith, it's called the Apostles' Creed, uh, says this, I believe in the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. And that's what we're going to think about today. Now, I want to bear in mind that with all the different people watching on YouTube, some of you, you will all be at different places. Some of you here, I know, are committed Christians. You're signed up members of a church. You, 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 you conf confess Jesus is Lord. You believe this. And it's great that you're with us. Others here are seeking. You're searching. You're trying to understand. You're asking questions. And that's brilliant. And we're glad you're here too. And there will be other people watching who actually are, are fundamentally sceptical. You might be curious about the Christian faith but you're just not sure. And, and when we start talking about the resurrection from the dead, to be honest, you, you, you're tempted to switch off and you think, well, this is just hocus pocus. How could anyone possibly believe it these days? So I want to try and attempt a difficult task today, which is to speak to all of us, to speak to those who are Christians, to help strengthen your faith in Christ, to put a spring in your step, to celebrate what the resurrection of Jesus means for you. But also for those who are seeking or sceptical, who are not really sure that they, they can believe this, or, or they find it very hard to. And I want to show you, because I think this is what our text is doing, I want to show you that this faith is built on the strongest foundation. So, so showing you those foundations, I then want to invite you to take some next steps. So trying an impossible task maybe today. This sermon has two points, what happened and what it means. What happened and what it means. So firstly, what happened? Now many people assume that Jesus couldn't possibly have risen from the dead. If that's you, then you have to find an alternative explanation. And many of them have been offered over the years. And I would say it is entirely reasonable and actually responsible to seek, to test a huge claim like the resurrection. It would be irresponsible not to because the whole edifice of the Christian faith rests on this foundation. It stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus did not really rise from the dead, then Christians are very foolish and are actually of all people most to be pitied. So our thinking about this question must be robust. Now, over the years, people have identified five main alternative explanations for what might have happened there on the first Easter Sunday. And I want to outline them to you briefly and then go through our text, comparing the data we have with these alternative explanations. So here are the five. Are you ready? One is the swoon theory. The swoon theory is that Jesus didn't actually die. He just fainted due to blood loss and exhaustion and so on, he swooned and then later on he recovered and he was able to show himself 
to his disciples. Secondly, there's what's known as the delusion theory, that this episode is a sincere delusion. The disciples had a passionate belief that Jesus just couldn't be dead. So they may, the argument goes, have had a kind of group hallucination or somehow convinced themselves that they saw him alive. The third alternative explanation is the theory, the myth theory. Some have claimed that these accounts were legends about Jesus, and like most legends, they were passed around mouth to mouth, and eventually they grew over time, so that many, many years afterwards, they were written down in this kind of mythical format, like other myths that we have from the ancient world. The fourth alternative explanation is that this is a conspiracy. Some people love conspiracy theories, don't they? So the idea here is that this is actually a fraud. Some of Jesus' disciples may have come along secretly and stolen his body. They then hid it and claimed that they'd seen him alive and the whole thing was built on a hoax. And the fifth kind of explanation, alternative explanation for these events is the symbol theory. Symbol as in symbolism, not drum kit. The resurrection, according to this view, is, was always meant to be a symbol. The early Christians never meant us to believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead, literally. Rather, they wrote about these things as a kind of artistic way to say that his teaching lived on and the spirit of Jesus was sort of embodied in his followers after his death. Now, most scholars agree that Mark's gospel was the first one the first official account of his life to be written down and copied. It was published within probably 30 to 35 years after the events we read about. So 30 to 35 years after the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, Mark wrote his account. And that means that it was within living memory of some of the participants in these events. And you may have noticed when we were reading the Bible how carefully Mark sets out the facts for our examination and he even names people specifically as eyewitnesses. And all of this is Mark's careful recording of a verifiable set of facts. Now I want to just go through those five explanations again and see how our text responds to them. Okay, so firstly the swoon theory. Was Jesus really not dead, uh, but fainted and was resuscitated? Now, there's a lot of information in our passage that actually undermines that theory. The whole burial account is a way to certify that Jesus was really dead. You'll notice that in chapter 15, verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, this is a ruling council for the country of Israel at that time, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. So Joseph is named here. He's a prominent person. His family would have been known. And he comes as an identifiable witness to have Jesus' body wrapped up and sealed in a tomb. And what we read next is that Pilate, who was the Roman governor, was actually surprised that Jesus had died so quickly. Jesus was crucified on the Friday and he was dead by the afternoon. It was very quick. So Pilate, verse 44, was surprised to hear that he was already dead. So he looks for proof. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. So at that point, the centurion would have to go and check 
And he's an expert witness whose business is to crucify people. And he comes back and says, yep, he's definitely dead. In fact, in other gospel accounts, we know that they thrust a spear into Jesus' side to make sure that he'd really died. So then verse 45, Pilate, when he learned from the centurion that it was so, gave the body to Joseph. And Joseph then makes preparations. Finally, in verse 47, two women are cited as eyewitnesses of the burial. If you see there, 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So what Mark is doing here is showing us multiple people, multiple witnesses, experts, some of them, who prove that Jesus is really dead and really buried. Now, another fact we could note is that during centuries in power, Romans crucified thousands of people. Not one of them is ever recorded as surviving the cross. The swoon theory doesn't have a lot going for it. What about delusions? Could it be that the, the, the disciples just had a kind of delusion? Sincerely. Now notice, if you turn to chapter 16, verse 5, the women who speak to this young man dressed in white are a group. The three of them that go. And people don't have shared group hallucinations where they all see the same thing and hear the same words and the same voices. And we mustn't overlook the fact that the resurrection was completely unexpected by Jesus' followers. Everything in our text shows this. Chapter 16, verse 1. They went and purchased expensive spices for the body. The practice of burial in those times was a two-stage burial. At the start, people would take the body wrap it in spices to cover the smell of decomposition and put it on the shelf in a tomb. And after a couple of years, when all the flesh had decomposed, they would go back and the second stage was to gather the bones, put them in a bone box called an ossuary and put it on another shelf, maybe even in the same tomb. These people are going with the spices. They're not going expecting that Jesus is risen from the dead. And then we see their reaction to the, to the angel or the young man dressed in white it shows that they're just, at this moment, unable to believe in the resurrection. Their first reaction is not, ah, I knew it, I knew he'd do it. But instead they are completely shocked, confused, we might even say traumatised, and actually very afraid. And then we should note, too, that none of Jesus' twelve, his male disciples, were there at all. They didn't expect that this would happen. They'd gone into hiding. Clearly, no one expected that Jesus would do what he had predicted when he said many times, I will rise on the third day. Now, why didn't they believe him? After all, they'd seen him do many things, amazing things, wonders and signs. Historians of the Jewish world help us at this point. They note that devout Jews did believe in a resurrection but that it was a resurrection of all humanity at the end of time. God would raise the dead on a single day. These Jewish believers had no category for a single individual person rising from the dead during history on a one-off basis. N.T. Wright is a professor of New Testament and early Christianity at the University of St. Andrews. Just listen to what this, this uh, world-renowned expert says on this point. It will not do, therefore, he says, to say that Jesus' disciples were so stunned and shocked by his death, so unable to come to terms with it, that they projected their shattered hopes 
onto the screen of fantasy and invented the idea of Jesus' resurrection as a way of coping with a cruelly broken dream. That has an initial, apparent, psychological plausibility, but it won't work as serious first century history. We know lots of other, sorry, we know of lots of other messianic and similar movements in the Jewish world, roughly contemporary with Jesus. In many cases, the leader died a violent death at the hands of authorities. In not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. Resurrection was not a private event. So we've thought about the swoon theory, we've thought about the delusion theory. What about, I'm going to wrap these two together, the idea that the resurrection is a myth or a symbol. Now Mark, our writer, is careful to name and identify real historical individual witnesses. Have a look again back at your Bible. Chapter 15, verse 40. Uh, Some women were watching from a distance. Among them, notice the names, were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Now, the fact that Mark names these women and distinguishes the two Marys, and even tells us about one of them has two sons and what their names are, all of that indicates that these people were actually well-known in the early church. They were part of the Jesus movement, They'd been with him in Galilee, in the north of the country, attending to his needs. These were people who looked after Jesus. They knew him well. Mark doesn't merely say, some people saw him, because then there would be no way to authenticate the account. He's giving eyewitnesses. And the naming of people is Mark's way of saying, all I'm writing here can be verified. Check it out for yourself. This is his way of showing us that the resurrection was a verifiable historical fact. Now on top of this, there's an interesting dynamic at play here, which is that Mark records the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus were women. Now why is this intriguing? In the ancient world, women's testimony was not valid in court. They were actually regarded as worthless witnesses in the culture. So this also attests to the authenticity of the account we have. In that culture, why would anyone make up a story with women as the primary witnesses? Because the testimony wouldn't stand. By claiming that the women, and only women, were the first witnesses and giving their names and their family record, Mark's account has the ring of truth, not the ring of symbolism and of legend and myth. Fifthly, the final one of these theories is the conspiracy theory. Was this all a fraud? Now, In verses 42 to 47, Mark reveals that it wasn't the disciples who buried the body of Jesus. It was a prominent man called Joseph of Arimathea. And that it was not the disciples again, but these dedicated women who came and were concerned to honour the body. They found out where the tomb was. They went and bought the spices. They were going to go and anoint him. So where were the disciples? Well, the answer is that they were terrified and confused. They were in shock. And they went into hiding. Everything indicates that they were too demoralised to carry out a hoax. If they were going to carry out a fraud, surely they would have been at the burial to see exactly where the body was. 
But there are two other major problems with this theory. First, the complete lack of belief in an individual resurrection makes the fraud theory very unlikely. Jews, as I've said, only believed in a general resurrection at the end of time. The idea of one person raised by himself into a new world order was kind of crazy. So in light of that, why would these disciples think that they could convince anyone that Jesus was raised from the dead? Unless Jesus really was appearing to people, there's simply no way that a movement based on that belief would get off the ground. Everything in their belief system resisted such a claim. And then finally, and I think for me, when I was a young person struggling with the truth claims of Christianity, this is, was a slam dunk argument. So let me just, just, just rehearse it with you here. History tells us that these disciples, these men who were so scared, later on went to give their lives for the cause of Jesus. Most of the 12 died painful deaths to spread the message that Jesus had risen and was alive. Could a hoax and a fraud have transformed them like that? Would you die for something that you know is a lie? No way. So in summary, what happened? Let me quote another scholar, Peter Kreft, he's a professor of philosophy at Boston College in the US. He's the author or editor of over 75 books. Kreft looks at all of the, these theories, at, well, he looks at the swoon, the hallucination, the myth, the conspiracy, and he presents 35 arguments in total against those theories. Now, you're gonna be relieved to hear we don't have time to look at those 35 arguments, but it is fair to say, I think, that every possible angle on the resurrection of Jesus has been weighed carefully. And this is what Peter Kreft concludes. What if you reason this through and you conclude that the only plausible explanation is that Jesus Christ really rose from the dead? What fate awaits you? He continues, the answer is not obscure. Traditional Christianity awaits you, complete with adoration of Christ as God, obedience to Christ as Lord, dependence on Christ as Saviour, humble confession of sin, and a serious effort to live Christ's life of self-sacrifice, detachment from the world, righteousness, holiness, and purity of thought, word, and deed. Those are the implications of believing and accepting that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. Kreft says, ask yourself that question if you dare and take an honest look in your heart before you answer. What happened? Jesus literally, physically rose from the dead as he had said he would. He kept his word. So that was my first point. What happened? Now secondly, what it means what it means for us is fear or faith. If we come to accept that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead, some 1,987 years ago, what does it mean for us today? What's the real world cash value for us this afternoon, on Monday morning, on Wednesday afternoon, on Friday night? What does it mean? Now, for further explanation, we have to look beyond Mark's gospel. As you can see, it, it ends rather abruptly, and I'll speak about that in a moment. But we need to turn elsewhere. Now, another place in the New Testament, and perhaps the greatest reflection 
on the resurrection of Jesus is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read from that. It'll come up on the screen. Uh, it's a wonderful chapter. We only have time to read verses 20 to 28. But this is glorious. And this is the Apostle Paul writing to a church and saying, here are some of the implications of Jesus rising from the dead. So hopefully it's on screen now. Let me read for you. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And by the way, fallen asleep means dying. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. What does it mean that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead? It means now that everything has changed. We notice in that passage that Jesus is, is kind of the first fruits. It's an image drawn from agriculture where the farmers would have ploughed their fields and sown the seed and, and watered and tended. And then finally the crop comes up. And eventually when, when, when the first crop comes, the first part that was harvested and brought in is regarded as the first fruits. And this is this image that Paul uses here to say Jesus Christ is not just a one-off event. He's the first fruits of a harvest that will include countless thousands and millions, even billions of people who will also be raised from the dead just like him. He's the first of many brothers and sisters. And it's a guarantee because he's done it. The passage also teaches us, therefore, that death is defeated. Now, many people in our time are struggling to come to terms with death. Death has been put right in front of our face now, perhaps more than for quite a long time for those of us in the West. We're seeing death. We're experiencing death because of the COVID-19 virus. And we've been brought up short and made to realise that we can't put death off forever. It's going to come. We're all on a, on a countdown. But this text says that alone in history, Jesus Christ has defeated death, our greatest enemy. So that when we die, those of us who believe and trust in Jesus, the end, death is not the end, but it's a gateway into a glorious future. So the worst, what is the worst thing that could happen to you is that you would die. That has now been transformed into the beginning of a far better life. The death of death. And the passage also says, thirdly, that now Jesus Christ has been appointed Lord of all. Now, he always was the eternal son of God, but he, he humiliated himself. He condescended to become one of us, to become a son of Adam. And Jesus Christ now becomes, through his resurrection from the dead, the Lord of all. And the text says that he shall rule 
until all his enemies are subdued, and then he will hand the kingdom back to God the Father. This is extraordinarily rich teaching. We haven't got time to go into it in depth today, but we are going to hopefully come back to it in future weeks. All of this is summed up by C.S. Lewis, a great Oxford and Cambridge academic who also wrote the, the wonderful Narnia books. Uh, Lewis, writing about miracles, says this, The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. Can you, are you starting to feel the significance of what Jesus has done? We're not just saying Jesus did something amazing. We're saying Jesus has changed the course of history because of his resurrection. He begins a new world. And so the promise for the Christian believer is that you get to be part of that new world, a home where righteousness dwells, the world to come. The resurrection means Jesus is Lord of all. And therefore a new era has begun. If Jesus rose from the dead, then all his teaching is true and vindicated. His teaching that we're all sinners in need of the grace of God. He's teaching on putting his claims on our life first, living a life of self-sacrifice and purity and putting his kingdom first all the time. If Jesus rose from the dead, then what he's promised regarding our hope of life after death is true. Death is not the end, but the gateway into something far better and more glorious. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then Christian friends, you have nothing left to fear. You have nothing left to fear. Yet so many of us are bound by fear. We're controlled by anxiety. We live in fear and we allow it to rule our lives. So let me ask, what could you fear that is bigger than Jesus? And what could happen to you that is worse than death, which he has now overcome? He's already defeated death. He didn't just defy it. He didn't just deny it. He destroyed it. Elsewhere, the Bible says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Christian friends, now's the time to start living to start walking in the light of Jesus' victory and not feeling defeated all the time. Why should you be a slave again to fear after all that he has accomplished for your sake? Have you allowed yourself to be taken captive by your fears? But what could be bigger than Jesus? Christians sometimes talk about taking their burdens to the cross. And I think there's, there's a lot of truth in that. We take our, our sins to the foot of the cross and we lay them there. But where should you take your fears? We should take our fears to the empty tomb and walk into it with those first women on that Easter morning all those years ago and see again 
The tomb is empty. He has risen. He is not here. He is risen. He has gone ahead of them. Everything has changed now. Now, you may have wondered when we were in our Bible reading why we stopped at verse 8 and also what's going on at the end of Mark's Gospel. I've got here uh, one of our church Bibles. Uh, it's the New International Version. And at the end of Mark's Gospel, it actually has like this little kind of health warning here that says, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses don't have verses 9 to 20. And they've even put it in this version in italics. And scholars uh, are almost unanimous in agreeing that these these, these endings that we have, alternative endings after verse 8, are not original. They may be very old, but it looks like people have felt that verse 8 was inconclusive and um, maybe uh, you know, it, there was an ending that got lost, and so they've tried to fill in the gap. And I think, having given this some study and reflection, people are probably right to say that Mark's original ending wasn't verse 8. Uh, it's a very abrupt way to finish, and it's not doesn't seem to be in line with the way that Mark normally writes. So what did happen to the ending? It's possible in a scroll for a final piece to be torn off. And it seems that probably one of the extremely early copies of Mark's Gospel, a piece was, was lost. So we don't have the original ending. Now, no one really knows about this. But let me make a, a, a suggestion to you, which is that in God's providence, verse 8 turns out to be quite a good ending. Just have a look at it with me again. Mark 16, verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. What a way to end the book. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And so we're now left with a blank here. What happens next? And that's a blank at the end of the story that we need to fill in for ourselves, each one of us. Do we take Easter for granted or are we awestruck by the power and wonder of the risen Lord Jesus? What also is the call of Jesus on your life now? What he said to the first disciples was, go ahead of me. I, I will go ahead of you into Galilee and meet you there. And when he did meet them, we read in, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus gave them their marching orders. They were to become his witnesses through the whole world. They were to go into every nation and make disciples, baptizing people, teaching them to obey, obey everything that Jesus had commanded. And Jesus said, I will be with you always to the very end of the world. So what is the call of Jesus Christ on your life today? What is he telling you to do? What tasks has he given you graciously to do today? Mark's Gospel is known for a technique called the sandwich technique. Mark often introduces somebody, starts a story, puts in a, an inter intermediate bit and then comes back. It's a little bit like a sandwich with bread on the outside and some filling in the middle. And this passage that we read today is the final of Mark's sandwiches. Notice how it starts with the women in verse 40 and talks about them. And then the sandwich is all about this man called Joseph of Arimathea this prominent man who comes and asks for the body of Jesus. And then the text ends again on the second bit of the sandwich with the women who were afraid. And what we notice in the middle of this sandwich is something that's very instructive for those of us who say we follow Jesus Christ 
and we too are disciples. It was that this man, Joseph, came out publicly and took some risks. He was one of the leading men in, this, in the nation. He was part of a leading family. He came out and identified that he too was on Jesus' team. And he took his life in his hands by doing that. He went to the Roman governor and asked for the body. Not only does he identify with Jesus publicly, he puts his resources at Jesus' disposal. Joseph must have moved very fast to go and uh, go to Pilate, arrange for the centurion to check the body, get the message back, get the body down, get the cloths, arrange for it to be done. All of this had to be done before the Sabbath, which began on Friday evening. Joseph puts his significant resources at Jesus' disposal. We know from another place that it was actually his own tomb, newly cut, that he laid Jesus', Jesus body in. What we see in Joseph is a picture here of what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, which is somebody who takes those risks, who steps out of their comfort zone, who identifies with Jesus and who puts all their resources at his disposal. What does Jesus want from you today? Will you live in fear or live in faith like Joseph? There is grace for all of us. I want to close with a story, true story about a man who had a lot to fear, but he found that Jesus was big enough to deal with all his fears. His name was Edward Coombs. He was a vicar in the Oxfordshire town of Banbury. He was known as the gentle vicar who'd served his church faithfully for 15 years. He was married with three young children, the youngest of whom was six. One day he fell ill and went to the doctors and they discovered that he had a rare form of cancer and he actually died just six months after he was diagnosed. That's not a lot of time to prepare for death, is it, for a younger man? Edward and his wife from the hospital wrote letters and gave uh, video diaries to keep their church family and friends up to date with what was going on. They shared their struggles openly, particularly the sadness of leaving young children behind. A friend of mine was a member of that church and here's what he wrote to me about what he saw. The letters always ended in praise and were full of hope. I realised that in the face of absolute certainty of imminent death, this guy is not faking it. He had a hope that simply didn't make sense. The people in the hospital couldn't believe it. We all saw how it cashed out in his life. We saw constant hope. And his last words were, Jesus is everything. Four years ago at that little church in Banbury, they sang this song, I Will Sing the Wondrous Story. I want to finish this message with one verse from that old song. He will keep me till the river rolls its waters at my feet. Then he'll bear me safely over, all my joys in him complete. Yes, I'll sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me. Sing it with the saints in glory, gathered by the crystal sea. That's our hope. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Loving God, Father, we thank you so much for Easter. We thank you that we've come through the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane and the horror of the cross. 
And now we stand blinking in the daylight of a new morning and realize with those early disciples, Jesus literally did rise from the dead and he has changed everything. Help us to revel in that today. Help us to be filled up and buoyed by it. Help us to bring our fears to that empty tomb and cast them in there never to come back. Change us, we pray, just as you have changed the course of history. For we ask in Jesus' name, for our good and for your glory. Amen.